guests, please let me know, and and we'll we'll uh, work feverishly to share our microphones. Uh, I'm Rick Barden uh, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, I'm the co-director with Karen von Hippel of our post-conflict reconstruction project, and it's uh, it's good to have you all here on a windy Monday morning. Thanks for um, being blown in the door. Uh, we appreciate your coming, and we're especially appreciative of our guests. As you know, this is part of an ongoing series <coughs> with the uh, with CSIS's Commission on Smart Power. I think there is a, a, a list of some of our upcoming programs that I direct your attention to and hope that you will also come for some of those sessions. They've all been really thoughtful and provocative. The idea for this commission was our president, John Hamries. He felt that America needed to renew its standing in the world and that a good way to do it in Washington was to pull together 20 distinguished Americans and ask them to put their best thoughts on how to do it. But he didn't just want it to take the, the larger challenge. He wanted to direct it to finding the right balance between our hard power, which we have become well known for globally, and our soft power, which obviously we're also well known for, but perhaps was in less uh, was was uh, in a in lesser employ over the over recent times, and we have produced a report about a month ago. The commission did uh, after uh, several several meetings and and great discussion, which I hope many of you have seen. It's certainly available online and will be available in print uh, shortly. Uh, right now, it's a pre-publication draft. It essentially has five major areas of recommendation. One of which we will really take up today, which is the whole area of public diplomacy and how, how the United States projects into other countries in, uh, in its cultural exchanges, mostly. Um, part of the, this, this whole commission is really designed to fill some of the intellectual space that is available as we get into a presidential election year, uh, where the campaigns are extremely active, but there's also a curiosity about what we're going to be offering uh, with a new administration. And so we hope that the report will, in fact, feed into the campaigns and will feed into the next administration. And so these ongoing discussions are part of that process. One part of the work that we did was to have a dialogue with America. I had the chance to go around and meet with uh, Americans in four early presidential states. And one of the New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, and Minnesota and one of the issues that they brought forward over and over again was that we do not really know the world particularly well, but that the world doesn't know us very well either. And that theme has found its way into our report uh, throughout, but in most particularly in this recommendation section on public diplomacy. So we're really pleased today to have three distinguished Americans who have really spent their careers working in this area. They have all had a background in American practical politics. They've served with distinction in public life. Uh, they have led educational institutions, and they have had a global perspective. So their fuller biographies are available to you, but the combination of their experience is precisely what we wanted to bring to this meeting this morning, and we're pleased to have you with us as well. Uh, what we're going to do, the rules are rather straightforward. I've asked each of our guests to start off with a five-minute discussion of their preferred issue in this area, but also to weave it, if they can, somewhat into our commission uh, report. And 
at the end of that, we, I will start the conversation, and then we will move to you for what hope, I hope will be an hour of discussion uh, with, with the audience as well. So please prepare your questions and know that there will be microphones walking around. This will also be on our website uh, as of tonight, uh, both in video and audio, and the transcript should be available within a week. Uh, so you'll have a chance to, to let your friends know what they've missed and to encourage the, uh, their uh, reactions as well. So the order today will be Steve Trachtenberg, the former president of George Washington, a, a well-known community builder here in Washington, uh, will start. And then Pat Swigert, the president of Howard University, will go next, uh, also with a distinguished public career. And then Carol Bellamy, who was a former colleague at the United Nations, where she ran UNICEF and was the first woman elected citywide in, the, in New York many years ago, uh, will we'll serve as our cleanup uh, speaker. And then we'll move to the conversation. So Steve, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me, let me begin by saying I want to associate myself with the report. Um, and I anticipate that everybody here has read it or is at least aware of its recommendation. And yes, uh, uh, <laughs> is my reaction to the report. Moving, moving past that, um, I am a, uh, basically a very uh, simple man and believe in, in simple ideas, uh, not all of them uh, um, original. So for example, I believe that business is the business of America. I didn't make that up, as all of you know, but I think it's a, uh, it's a useful thought to keep, uh, to keep in mind. Having said that, <coughs> uh, I would quote my uh, departed father, who used to say, um, uh, it is uh, easier uh, to sell to somebody in his own language. If you want to buy, you can buy in English. And so uh, uh, he made it his business to sell to speak to people who spoke Yiddish. And, uh, <coughs> and, uh, and it served him uh, very well uh, during, during his career. Um, I think if, uh, if we are going to pursue the notion of the United States uh, as, a, uh, as a merchant nation, uh, um, whether we sell products or whether we sell services, it's imperative uh, that our population uh, speak the languages of our, uh, of our potential uh, um, customers. Uh, and if, if you agree with me uh, uh, at that uh, point, uh, I would then point out that uh, very few Americans uh, are uh, devoting themselves uh, to studying the hard languages. Yes, we've got people who, uh, who are uh, approaching some competence in English, although that's debatable. <laughs> but. Uh, um, but once you get past English and, and youngsters who are going to the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand for their uh, sabbaticals and their summers, summers off and their junior year abroad, uh, and, uh, and once you get past people who are going to, uh, to uh, Mexico and, uh, and uh, the Dominican Republic and, uh, and Costa Rica, uh, we, we start running into problems. Now, more and more people are, in fact, looking at Chinese, looking at uh, Japanese, looking at uh, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Russian, but we have fewer and fewer, or virtually none, uh, um, mastering uh, uh, Pashtun and uh, and uh, and Arabic and Persian. And uh, I notice that Iran keeps coming up uh, in the news on a regular basis, uh, and there seems to be very little understanding by most of my friends uh, that it is not an Arab country, and that uh, uh, that Arabic is not the language of uh, of Iran, and that simply being uh, a Muslim. Uh, is not sufficient in as much as even the Muslims break down into different groups. And so uh, um, 
if you look at the Arab and the, and the Islamic world, you discover that there are uh, um, uh, contesting uh, uh, factors. And so, and so uh, the issue of language uh, is the one I myself would, would center on. I think it's imperative that we restore uh, something in the nature of the National Defense Education Act and that we, uh, that we provide uh, resources uh, to make sure that Americans uh, are studying uh, the languages of the countries that are going to be consequential in the 21st century. And, um, and they are not always uh, apparent. Uh, some years ago, uh, the son of the Prime Minister of, of, uh, of Turkey was a student at GW, and he visited the President, and while he was here, he and his wife had my, my wife and me to tea. And in the course of, in the, course of the conversation, uh, the subject of, uh, you, you'll be shocked to hear this, the subject of a benefaction uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, Turkey to George Washington University came up, and he, and he immediately said, oh, well, all right, how about a chair in Turkish, uh, uh, in Turkish studies? And, uh, and I said, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, we don't need a, a single isolated chair in Turkish studies. What we need is for Americans to be going to Turkey and Turks to be coming to the United States. And we took his $2 million, and, uh, and we created an exchange fund with uh, Bozici University in Istanbul, and American GW uh, uh, students and professors go on a regular basis now to Istanbul, and, uh, and uh, Turks come to, the, uh, to, to GW, and what we have is a constant exchange of people who not only uh, um, uh, learn a little about uh, whatever disciplines they, they happen to be in, many of them are engineers, but also learn something about the respective countries and their people, and they develop friendships uh, far more consequential, I think, than having a single professor who would be delivering lectures in isolation about the Ottoman Empire. Fact of the matter is, if you stop most Americans on the street and you say, tell me everything you know about Turkey, they say it goes great, it goes great with cranberry sauce. <laughs> they, are, they are not aware that this, is, that this is a hinge country, they're not aware of its size, they're not aware of its complexity, they're, they're not aware that it is half in Europe and half in Asia. They're not aware that it pokes up against uh, uh, Iran, uh, that there are issues with the Kurds, and that it, it, in fact, may be one of the most consequential countries in resolving some of the problems we have with Iraq and Iran. So um, uh, I, believe, I believe in the exchange of uh, uh, human beings. We all need to be, and I use this word in the most benign way, hostages to each other. We need to know e e each other's families, we need to know each other's children, we need to know each other's languages and cultures, and that doesn't happen by sitting at home in Ann Arbor, in, uh, in Cambridge, in Washington. It happens by going to these countries, and going as, uh, as students and continuing to go later on, uh, later on in life. Uh, and so I, I, I think that, that the genius of the National Defense Education Act, which I mentioned before, the genius of the Peace Corps, the genius of the Fulbright program, uh, all need to be uh, re-energized, uh, reaffirmed, uh, and, uh, and in this manner, uh, make it possible for us to build, to build bonds uh, that will serve the world, but frankly, as a patriot, America, uh, well in the, uh, in the years to come. I see. Pat. Let me go uh, in
comments and his observations. And I'm going to cite to you um, uh, a number of statistics, hopefully not too many, uh, uh, but I, I think one or two statistics really are telling. Uh, as, we, as we think about educating Americans, um, uh, whether it be primary, secondary, or higher ed, uh, one of the ways in which um, we're educated is our ability to cross-fertilize with folks from other countries, other cultures, other, other points of view. In higher education, that typically takes the form of exchanges, either exchange of faculty uh, or exchange of students. Um, the United States has been a leading uh, receiving country, uh, certainly since the, the conclusion of the Second World War. I have uh, three pages of, of statistics, which I will not share with you. I won't do that to you. <laughs> but, but I just want to share one or two, uh, but I do want to read the headline uh, of my remarks. And the headline reads, International Education, a burgeoning field, but U.S. falling be far behind in enrollment. International education, a growing field, but U.S. falling far behind in enrollment. Now, just one or two statistics. The number of students at higher education institutions outside their home countries is growing rapidly. I think we all know that. In 2004, there were 2.5 million such students worldwide, up from 1.8 million in 2001, and from 1.68 million in 1999, and these are UNESCO statistics. Estimates are that by 2025, there will be 7.2 million international students, 70% of whom will be Asian compared with 43% in 2000. This increased demand is based on projected growth in household wealth, increased demand for higher education, the lack of capacity in some countries to meet this demand, and growing interest Thank you. And growing interest <laughs> in studying overseas. <laughs> now, one, uh, one additional uh, Statistics. I assume that'll be that my you voice will be moderated by. Okay, I'll break out in song. If not. <laughs> One other statistic, which I think is uh, is quite telling. In 2004, China was the largest sending country, with 343,000 plus students pursuing higher education studies outside of China. 343,000, as a group. Students from China made, made, make up 14% of the total worldwide international student population, again, UNESCO. China is also emerging as a top host country as international student enrollment grew 213% from 1999 to 2005. We talk about, and we hear so much about outsourcing uh, of, uh, of American industry. We hear so much uh, about Chinese products that are being imported into the United States and our trade relationship with China generally. Uh, there's also a relationship that's underway which is terribly important, namely the higher education relationship. And as the statistics would indicate, uh, the fastest growing nation in terms of receiving foreign students happens to be China as well. What are the implications over time? Uh, is this something that uh, as a reflection of soft power, we need to put more hard thinking toward. Um, I'll leave uh, the question 
uh, up to you, and hopefully we'll have a chance to revisit uh, the statistic. Now, if anyone would like all three pages of my statistics, um, <laughs> you can talk to me afterwards. We'll put them on the record. We'll put them on the record. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd like to... <laughs> well, nice to join. I'm not sure what there is left to say, um, although I talked a little bit about uh, exchanges. I, uh, one comment on language, uh, Steve. I was, uh, I, I'm increasingly convinced that this country, where we live, where we are, is a country that actually is a country, a multilingual country that is on a, an incredible roadrunner race to become monolingual. Uh, and I don't quite understand why that is so, frankly. Oops, um, and, and we ought to celebrate the fact that we are more multilingual than we, the, than we give ourselves credit for. Um, well, it's nice to be here. I, I see some of the, uh, nice to be back with Rick, who I did serve in the United Nations with, a time that I, I, I began to feel even more how urgent it is that the subject that we're talking about uh, is critically important and, and, um, and, that, and that the United States somehow at least uh, be seen again as, as a moral, not as the only moral authority, but at least wish to be seen as a moral authority, not wish to be, to be a hammer in moral authority, but to actually demonstrate in how it acts as a moral authority again. And uh, how was I know that I, I got my start in life and, um, and in fact the most important thing I ever did in my life was soft power when I, I just thought I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, totally unqualified liberal arts graduate who went and joined the Peace Corps uh, back in the early 60s. But, um, but still the most important thing I, I ever did, and to the extent to which we're talking about those kind of human relationships, it seems to me that's, that's what we need to be talking about these days, that, that as we talked about at breakfast this morning, that um, defining um, approaches to, to brand America in terms of marketing campaigns um, is by its own nature set to fail, it seems to me. But in terms of human exchanges, where the dialogue is actually um, uh, real, where it's where it's not false, where it's not where it's not something that's been conceived of, but it's actually there is an authenticity in that uh, engagement in that dialogue. I think that's very important. So my just in my present job where I have an opportunity, I, I wanted to not just talk about us, but a range of different kinds of exchanges because as as folks, I even count myself a little bit in the academic academic environment today. Uh, we talk about students and student exchanges. That's certainly one kind of exchange, and I want to come back to that in a moment. But there are arts exchanges. There are middle-level professional exchanges. There are there's even military exchanges. There are chamber of commerce exchanges. As you mentioned, there's Fulbright. There's Eisenhower. Um, you know, international visitors. There's a whole range that seem to be, in my mind, too often seen as an add-on. Same as student exchanges. Uh, until until I think there's a full appreciation that you can't get a higher education or you shouldn't have, you shouldn't be seen to have had a complete higher education until you've had at least one international experience rather than isn't that nice in addition um, something special on top of your educational experience. I don't think we're going to get there. I actually think business gets it better than the private, better than the public sector about how important. I mean one out of, what is it, one out of six jobs in this country is somehow related to, to international trade. And so in looking for future employees, having had some kind of international experience is something that's critically important. That being said, uh, I, I think we have to step back just on student exchanges and realize that, that it's still less than 2% of all American undergraduates have some kind of a real international 
um, experience while they are in their undergraduate years. I'm not talking about the weekend to Canada, uh, and, uh, and I'm not even talking about the fact that they may have traveled, because our young people today probably have traveled. We see that in the students that come into our programs. But they are not disconnected ever. Uh, they remain in the American bubble, um, and, 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 and they really don't have that kind of experience. So now that, that differs from institution to institution. I mean, some kind of small, high-end institutions will have a larger percentage than this, less than 2%. Community colleges, um, state schools, um, uh, minorities, um, economically um, uh, challenged uh, students have more difficulty there. So moving more to try and create a platform where uh, it isn't after the fact funding, where there really is a commitment to some kind of international experience, where not everybody goes to the countries they go to now. I mean, close to 50% of all international, um, uh, close to 50% of all student <coughs> undergraduate exchanges today are in only four countries. They're very nice countries, Spain, Italy, France, and the UK. Um, but they, are, they ought to be going to, um, to, to, to Chile, to Argentina, to Senegal, to, to Vietnam, to China, to India, and everywhere else. I mean, there are many places. I mean, I always worry about risk in different places, but the biggest risks for our students recently have been bombs in Spain and the UK and riots in France. So it isn't something that I'm worrying about when we have a student in Tanzania uh, at this point in time. So I just, uh, to me, the, the challenge is to, and maybe it's even the term, we use the term soft power. The challenge is to translate soft as something that is really taken seriously and thought of as very hard. Let me, let me pick up on, on exactly that point, because I think the three of you have agreed that this needs to be foundational. It, it, it shouldn't just be transactional. It should be part of our way of living. So how do we capture the American public's mind? You've all been successful in your communications to the public at different parts of your career, probably more or less so. Uh, but what do you think it's going to take to make this concept more broadly accepted, so it isn't just an add-on, as Carol suggested, but something that is really at the, in, at the core fabric of how we're thinking as a society and how we're thinking as a government, because oftentimes the government can be the leader, can be the intellectual leader on these kinds of changes. Well, uh, you know, I think the American people are the best <coughs> ambassadors we can send, and I might add, not just at the student age, but across the board. I mean, it'd be nice if AARP were to weigh in on, on, uh, on this subject. But to be more specific, and so how how do you get AARP into it? How do you how do you get them to well, turn you, on to this? You pick up a phone. Uh, uh, okay. uh, you call them up and you and you invite them over and you explain it to them. I'm sure if you if you, if you gave them the vision, uh, they they'd be interested. Uh, they put out a, a magazine which shows up in my uh, in my mailbox every month. It seems to me it's been coming since I was. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they keep defining down uh, what what it means to be a, a member of the Association of Retired Persons. And they finally, they finally got to me. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's a matter of putting things into their journals and 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 developing travel travel groups as well as extended stay uh, opportunities for people who are older. But older these days seems to me to be relatively young and fit. Um, um, Just that yeah. I don't want to interrupt. But I mean, yeah. Peace Corps right now has a uh, a. Um, an initiative specifically, even though there have been older volunteers since the beginning, they have an initiative specifically focused, it seems to me, on all these boomers at this point. To yeah, say, hey, you may have forgotten 
uh, thought it passed you by, but come on, come on in. You can, you can probably the, join. Cousin Carter's mother, remember? Right, right. Yeah. She looked like a yeah. walnut at the yeah. time. <laughs> but, but she went, and she, and she uh, I think, represented the country, the country well. I've been chairing the Rhodes Scholarship uh, uh, Committee for a number of years. And I'm going to tell you, if you ever have a moment where you're down about the, the state of the republic, you meet these kids, and they, and they pick you up. And, and they are, I think, representative of, of their generation. They are obviously flat, somewhat outstanding uh, relative to other people because they not only have found the cure for, for uh, uh, cancer, but also uh, are uh, outstanding ballet artists. But, but nevertheless, there is a very large body of wonderful young people in this country, and, to the ex and they bring enthusiasm and patriotism and, uh, um, and, a, and, a, and a wonderful glowing American innocence uh, to these, uh, to these uh, conversations that I think transcends government. It becomes a matter of generational communication. Very important. Yeah, I think, uh, firstly, I think we all agree that uh, the late Mrs. Carter was, was just a delightful and beautiful lady. Uh, no one, and, but let, let, me just, let me just say that I think one of our challenges is to draw, is to convince the American public writ large of the nexus between the notion of a foreign-based cultural educational experience and their own livelihood and their own way of life. Uh, we've talked about uh, language studies uh, almost since the founding uh, of what's now called American higher education. Uh, many years ago while serving as uh, many, many years ago while serving as uh, uh, Executive Vice President of Temple University, uh, I made a suggestion uh, that was received with, uh, well, I will say enthusiasm, but not necessarily positive enthusiasm on campus. Uh, my suggestion was that, um, and this was made by me in 1999, I remember the date quite well. Uh, my suggestion was that no student could graduate from Temple University, whose enrollment at that time was 34,000. No student can graduate from Temple University without demonstrated proficiency in some foreign language. Now, the Modern Languages Department of the university cheered me. Um, uh, I was carried about the campus on their collective shoulders. Um, and I left the next year. Uh, I left Philadelphia, uh, not on a rail, um, but all sorts of questions were raised. And, and it's interesting, uh, Carol mentioned business gets it. A number of the major businesses in Philadelphia, uh, particularly the, the, the drug manufacturers, SmithKline, it's called SmithKline Beck, Beckham at the time, Sterling Drugs and some others, they thought this was a terrific idea in terms of the new and emerging workforce that would be selling product, manufacturing product ab ab abroad. Uh, the rest of the academy, however, said that's fine, except you're taking away from our new chemistry building, you're taking away from our arts program, you'd be taking away from uh, the new resources the School of Business is requiring. In other words, it was a resources issue. I don't think there was much of a concern that that would be really a neat thing to do if everyone had some demonstrated proficiency, not simply passing courses, but being able to at least speak some rudimentary ability to write and to read headlines in a foreign language uh, uh, newspaper. Um, we haven't gotten very far beyond that. I know of no university that has such a requirement today. There may be one or two, but I, I simply don't know. And why is that? Well, 
because the nexus is very, very difficult to make between that skill and life experience and success in life experience. Well, I think that gets to really one of our big challenges here in Washington, which is <clears throat> we don't have a hard time coming up with great new ideas, but the trade-offs are not as readily sought. And so if we're going to do what Steve has suggested, which is to bring back the, the National Defense Act or whichever piece you referred to, or we're going to do what you just suggested on the campus, it is probably going to take some trade-offs. And how do, you, how do you communicate that to the American public? Because that's probably where they're going to be most enthusiastic as a zero-sum game rather than just as additional responsibilities. Well, members of the administration, I think particularly of the Spellings Commission most recently, Secretary Spellings, and, uh, and uh, people in Congress, uh, whether it's Senator Grassley or, uh, or Congressman McEwen, uh, have got a variety of criticisms about uh, American higher education. They focus on the management of universities and they focus on tuition prices. Uh, better, I think, they should be concerned with the quality of the services provided because at no price uh, is a bargain if the uh, youngsters don't get the kinds of education that are going to make them helpful, use, useful in the, in the, uh, in the 21st uh, century. And it turns out that universities and the people who populate them, professors, administrators, students, are tropistic. Like plants lean towards the, uh, lean towards the sun and their roots go to water, universities lean towards money. And, uh, and money, it turns out, is the mother's milk of academic initiative and programming. And so to the extent that you want to influence the direction that universities go in, the kinds of programs that they commit themselves to, it's very useful uh, to put a financial uh, reward, incentive, uh, uh, program uh, in, into place. So I come back to where I began, which is uh, scholarship programs that make it possible for youngsters to go to universities, to cover their fees, and to study certain kinds of programs that we believe are in the national interest are an affirmative, a positive way of, uh, of incentivizing universities rather than scolding them or rather than suggesting that uh, um, the lashings will continue until uh, morale improves. I, uh, just a couple comments. I, um, um, I, think, I think we ought to be doing a couple of things. We're just going to, at this point, talk about the academic campus. I think to the extent to which um, higher education in this country even in this country at this point is trying to internationalize uh, its campus somewhat more. It needs to do that not only by virtue of having some non-American national students, uh, but some of the, uh, and have not having them segregated either. Um, but at the same time, if you're going to have an international speaker or a series of speakers, do one of the, one of the um, presentations in the community. Don't keep it all just within the walls of, uh, the, the, the so-called walls of the institution. Secondly, to the extent to which there are exchanges, I think it is critical that, uh, that uh, U.S. institutions try and make sure that, and whatever kind, because there are different kinds of student exchanges. There is the classroom to classroom. There is there, there's the you know, multiple offerings more along what we do. But there, there are different kinds of good exchanges. But I think it is, again, important that the, that the American student not only remain, and I used the term before, in that American bubble. So that if they are going to, they're going to school here and then they're going to the University of Barcelona, that they're not just only living with other Americans and then going to class with other Americans in the University of Barcelona, as the case may be. I, I don't mean they, they can't be with other Americans, but at least it'd be a, a more, there'd be a more, more depth. Third, I, um, 
you know, we, I'm, I'm, I see a couple of people in the room. I see Sherry Miller. I see uh, Peter Simpson involved in visitor exchange programs to this country. And they, they don't want to just come to Washington. They go to uh, Tallahassee and, and Minnesota and, uh, uh, and other parts. But how much they get beyond even there more deeply into the community, I think it's worth taking a look. At least they're not just Washington and New York and San Francisco bound. But I think it's even worth taking a look of how it gets beyond the particular community in these places that's, inter that's interested in international issues. And then finally, and this isn't necessarily academics, but we just, it, however it, it happens, somehow, uh, communications. And when I graduated from law school, I used to think that tax lawyers ran the world. But now I think that media runs the world. And, um, and the fact is you can't get a story on about international issues in this country unless you have the word terrorism in it. And until we begin to somehow have a, a, a broader uh, uh, range of, of media communication about the world, I don't think we're going to really begin to infect more broadly the, the general populace about the importance of two-way engagement. Rick, I'd like to, I know you're anxious to, to open the discussion up to, to the audience, but I'd like to, uh, in Steve's words, I'd like to go back to where I began and with the observation that uh, as we're talking about enriching the American higher education experience, uh, at that very same, the very same time, I think we also need to ask ourselves how important is it to us to continue to lead the world uh, in receiving um, uh, international students? Is, is, is that a, a strategic importance and, and how is it important? Well, if you go to the campuses and you move to mathematics, computer sciences, engineering writ large, and business administration, you'll find it's very important because those graduate students, international graduate students, make up a significant community of teaching assistants, graduate fellows, postdoctoral fellows, otherwise. Very, very important. Um, uh, I think it's an issue that needs to be more fully understood and appreciated, uh, particularly when you consider those nations that are rising in terms of receiving uh, international students as we are, if not declining, we're plateauing. I think those are there's some very important implications over time. Again, in my view, those students who come to our campuses, those international students, they also, they're also part of the educational experience of our students who are going to go out and lead. Um, because one of the things that happens uh, is that most campuses really do try to keep those students integrated, fully integrated in campus life, so they not dwell in a bubble. But if we're losing our leadership, um, and you, you heard just of one or two numbers, uh, China, uh, India, uh, not, not surprisingly, countries that are also uh, rising in terms of, uh, of their ability to export product, uh, they're also importing uh, as well. Um, and they're importing other brains, other talents from other places. And I think this is an important issue. Why we can't elevate this without the word terror or terrorism uh, is perhaps for another panel, but it's certainly an important issue. Thank you. And they're doing it at prices that are yeah. so much less than what we charge here that they are obviously going to be very seductive to third world and developing countries. Without us having scholarships, we're not going to be able to compete. Oh, yeah. uh, 
Um, let me turn to the audience, but ask a few questions of you first, if I could. How many people here speak a second language? So we have wow. a, let's assume that we've either taken huge leaps as a country or we have a, a, an elite group. Um, Do we count on the panel? <laughs> how, many, how many of you have actually had one of these in-depth life experiences where you have, where you have lived in a country rather than just uh, visited? Um, so again, again, we've, we're just so pleased with what's happening to America. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> how, well, we're uh, all convinced. Let's go home. <laughs> so, so I think in a way we need to push. I, I'm, I'm happy to establish that because I think we have to push the argument. I'm sure that we've all agreed with most everything that we've heard. So please feel free to challenge us because I know that uh, this, whether we're not going to make the progress that the commission is looking for, if it's just a matter of expanding the elite. It's going to be a question of really capturing the broader American public. So I hope as you ask your questions that uh, you will, first off, give us your name, your association if you have one, and, uh, and then your, your keep your question under a minute or I'll get really restless. Um, why don't we start over here, if we can get the microphone. How many microphones do we have to, to, for the room? Okay. Why don't you go head towards the second hand? You can pick it, and then I'll see where it is, okay? Yes, please, Monica. My name is Monica Coley, and I'm a research assistant here at CSIS. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Um, I'm a victim of doing the soft exchange program. Um, I studied in Italy, but um, <laughs> it's a great experience. Um, but I've also spent time abroad doing And I found that now, as someone who's young and looking for what my opportunities are in the future, and, and when I was abroad, I think that you've touched on the problem that is this bubble. And I think, I, I think one of the major impediments in exchange programs is simply that the communication of the opportunities that exist is not made available. There isn't that communication about opportunities that we can do as young people to the Fulbright, you know, those are the obvious ones, but ones that maybe aren't as um, competitive. But when you're abroad, I think as educators, of making those opportunities of doing community service abroad are important. And I wonder as leaders of your institution, how you, are, you can better communicate to people who might be interested, but just don't know the opportunities are there. And that might help also to people who aren't elite if those opportunities better. So I wonder what you think we can do better. Why don't we answer this one, and then what I'll do is take a group of uh, three or four questions, and, and then you can each pick off the ones that you'd like best. Well, I think you're right. It, it all starts at the top, and I think to the extent that university presidents, like uh, President Swaggart, uh, articulate this vision on their campuses, uh, and it permeates to uh, um, uh, students and faculty, uh, and resources are available to make possible. Uh, the implementation of the ideas, uh, things will in fact uh, uh, transpire. But let's start it really at the top. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a president of the United States who made this a matter of foreign policy and who said, I think it would be a good thing if the world saw Americans and Americans writ large, not necessarily Americans wearing a uniform, uh, um, people who are uh, plumbers, people who are, uh, God save us, lawyers, people who are uh, uh, professors, uh, dentists, if we encouraged Americans uh, to go abroad, as, as Carol has suggested, 
uh, to spend time in, in various programs. I mentioned the AARP before. Uh, presumably some of their membership are healthy, retired, have time, could make uh, contributions. There are programs already in place to follow up on these things. We need to be more robust about them, more encouraging. Uh, and I think conversations like this and the report that, uh, that uh, you have generated uh, moves this ball down, uh, down the court. But um, it's not something that's going to happen easily, and we have to stay on it and do it again and again and again. Um, Good. Let me have, we have a microphone right here. Yes, I think this is on. Why don't, you, why don't you bring the second one down here? We'll just go. We'll get. A, we'll back up five here, so each of you can just pick if you don't mind, just taking notes sure. of which ones you want to answer. Thanks. Marilyn Sachs, Macmillan World Learnings, Delphi International Program, Native Washingtonian, and beneficiary in the 1950s. I'm really dating myself of a foreign language in the elementary schools program, mm -hmm. which I credit with really putting me on a path towards international programming, international exchange, interest in the rest of the world keep it really brief, how do we connect with, not only from the top up, the presidential level, but at the grassroots level and make it bottom up so that we meet somewhere in the middle and expand the whole interest, ability, and skills in learning foreign languages and applying that to a larger world vision. Great, thank you. Okay, uh, one, let's take this gentleman on the aisle here. Um, this is... It's, it's, on, it's on, it's on, yeah. My name is Frank Dahl at George Washington University. Carol and I have had a lot to do with education in UNICEF for years. I was one of her chief educational advisors in the Middle East. Um, the whole notion of education, and presumably this is at the core of what we're talking about here, doesn't begin at the top, but it begins at the bottom, and I'm glad you raised that. I live in Montgomery County, and I wander around and go into schools to take a look for myself what's going on. I have a 13-year-old as well. We're trying to find a program where he might be able to go and either learn Chinese or Arabic or both, and we can't find any such program near us. And I think this is something that many parents that I um, talk to seem to be worried about. Currently, I think in Montgomery County, we have 102 language groups represented, and we're probably only offering about two languages in the schools, uh, for certain, that is, French and Spanish. Spanish, of course, is very important because the Spanish-speaking population is growing very quickly. I'm wondering whether this doesn't need to start at a much earlier age, at the primary level, at the secondary level, but it needs to start not only with good language teaching and more offerings, that is, more to choose from, but exchanges. Um, I can remember my youngest daughter in Amman when we were based in Amman with UNICEF going around Arab countries on school exchanges as part of an international school that she was part of, and she learned an enormous amount traveling to Turkey, Egypt, uh, neighboring countries, and meeting um, other Arab and non-Arab children. That experience basically um, turned her into what she is at the moment, which is an a ABC reporter, but she does the international thing in Florida. And if it hadn't have been for that, I think she probably wouldn't have moved in that direction. But the, the issue here is that uh, education is a structural thing. We have to begin at the beginning and build the base mm -hmm. and not just talk about the top. And the top is all right, okay. but we have to go beyond that. Great, thank you. Uh, why don't we go back here? And then let's come up front here and we'll go. John Rothenberg, um, U.S. Afghanistan Reconstruction Council, but most more importantly for this, uh, former Peace Corps recruiter and PIM at SIT. Um, uh, <laughs> When I was a recruiter in the 80s, um, there was a real turnaround in 
recruitment of people who weren't um, altruistic. It was more towards their careers. Um, this was very much to do with Laura Rupi, who was the Peace Corps director. Um, now it seems to me, from lots of things that I see, that there's a big negative spin on um, doing international education work um, or exchange exchanges. Um, I, I think that that is one of the most dangerous things to this country uh, that I see. And I'm wondering how that how people feel that can be dealt with. Okay, let's take a couple more. Uh, why don't we get this one right here? Yes. I'm Joyce Francis from American University in the Literacy for Globalist Project. A quick comment that uh, to your data that I remember reading just recently by Fareed Zakaria that uh, in this decade global travel and tourism is going up 44% while in the, to the United States it's declining 17% largely because of visa fraud that people have, are so hassled trying to get visas here so I think there's a role that we need to you know, get on our government to change that but uh, on the issue of, of education you all have talked l largely about formal education and I would argue that we can't wait for those folks to grow up and start voting. <laughs> we need to be concerned with the adults in our country who have missed this part of their education and are voting, and uh, that we should be targeting continuing and lifelong education. Mm -hmm. okay. um, let's go, where's the, okay, please. Yes, you have the microphone. Uh, my name is Shelley Weinstein, and I would like to take this a level up of where what the discussion has been and take advantage of the brain power that you have standing there and first say that in my view, uh, if the term smart power is merely another way of changing the word soft power, we've missed the ball game because smart power is national security, and we have learned that in the last six, seven years, clearly. Uh, what I would, and if it is a part of national security, uh, the point that I would like to ask about, while I uh, totally agree. You should feel comfortable it is, and our report says that. Yeah, oh good, I'm happy to hear that. I'm waiting, for, that. I'm waiting for the report. Okay. <laughs> I have Great. requested it. Uh, while it is, there is a need to raise it, whether it is the grassroots or the top or the professional or the people in rural and agricultural who do not even think about education. There is a need to think about what the 9-11 Commission recommendation said when they talked about what they called then soft power. And that is to think globally. And without the recommendation of really doing for our global goods what we did for commerce, what Dr. Trachtenberg says, we are a part of, we are a country of commerce, but we're also a country in the global society and economy that is information, training, and education. And we must think about, as we address this, there's all different kinds of needs about how we create a network of global goods dedicated to education, to healthcare, to training, 
and begin that. And I'd like to have comments from all three of the brain powers sitting up there <laughs> as to what we can do that it becomes a part of foreign policy and national security because as much as we like to give it good um, words talking about it, if you speak to the State Department or you speak to anyone experienced in government, and I certainly work with them all the time, you'll find that the state says, oh, we don't do education, and government says, well, we really are into hard power national security. Okay, thank you. Let's, uh, let's give our, our panel a chance to take those questions, and then I'm going uh, to ask you all if you could Tighten up your questions even a and your comments a little more because there are a lot of hands here and I want to make sure we get the most everybody. So please, yeah. just jump in wherever yeah, you'd like. I'd like to, uh, I'm going to try to speak to two, two questions uh, and hopefully not, not do short shrift to, to either. Mm -hmm. One, the, the question, uh, first, one observation regarding uh, our being able to reach uh, younger people, um, uh, which was, was asked by speaker to my left, and um, a second question having to do with um, uh, study, uh, again, I think was consistent with that from our, our, our colleague from George Washington University. Uh, as it happens, uh, the Department of Defense uh, ran a very well-received and very successful, I would argue, program um, a few years ago, two years ago, in fact, uh, at various campuses around the country, and it was designed to introduce middle school students to critical languages. I believe it was called the Critical Languages Program or Initiative, uh, and it was sponsored by the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, as it happens, Howard was uh, one of the participating institutions. It was a summer program. I believe it was six to eight weeks. Uh, middle school students were brought in, and the languages were, not surprisingly, uh, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Arabic. Um, uh, there were a number of other languages as well. Uh, what's happened to that program, whether it was uh, uh, a model, whether it was uh, a test program, I don't know. But, but um, uh, it, uh, it, it, it's one of, I've got to assume, uh, other programs like it. And it's, it's one that I'm quite familiar with. And, and high schools and middle schools were recruited, it, it counselors were recruited. And again, as, as I understand, it was very successful. That's just a... a, a a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket of the larger set of issues, of course, but, but I do think that uh, raising and elevating those, those success stories uh, is important. But I, I also want to just one, one further word in terms of where do we start, the bottom, the top, the middle, or do we start uh, everywhere at the same time? Um, uh, what I would like to see, and go, going back to where we began, uh, I'd like to see the the, the larger issue uh, elevated uh, to the extent that it's talked about by national political personalities, uh, because that's where energy is going to come and energy is going to flow from and ultimately resources. Um, and how that might be done, uh, again, one can, one can discuss that. Uh, but until such time as we go, as we go beyond uh, this audience, uh, where 90% by show of hands, folk have already had, in a sense, the experience. I think elevating it, and this is part of the elevating it and letting it, letting our national uh, uh, personalities know that it's a serious issue that serious-minded people think seriously about and are concerned about. Uh, 
quick, I want to come back on just one thing on reentry here. I actually think that one of the things that we haven't done very well in terms of um, um, exchange programs, certainly student exchange programs, whether it's high school or uh, undergraduate, is think we think we reasonably good about thinking about pre-departure and then the program perhaps. But the reentry and, and what happens when you have this young person who, who maybe has had their eyes open somehow um, and want to make some choices and, and we kind of just, they come back and that's it. And so I do think uh, all of us need to be thinking a little bit, all of us in any of the uh, areas that we're, we're involved in, any kind of exchange, ought to be thinking a little bit more about whether there's anything more concrete that one can be doing in terms of reentry. Two languages. I, 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 spoke recently, don't know why, because I speak another language, I come from Brooklyn, but I spoke recently <laughs> at, at, um, at, at the uh, annual meeting of the, of the uh, Teachers of Foreign Languages in New York State. And it, what we, my, I guess my duh moment there was realizing uh, these people were all very committed, but it really, it wasn't so much that it was state education department policy, it was whether a particular school or a particular school district had some really motivated and committed people. So. It, you really it had some terrific things happening in some places and nothing happening in other places, but it wasn't it wasn't because the state ed department has said you know language languages and particularly starting early are is very good. Secondly, in this country, what happens also to the extent to which we're doing languages is that in in the freshman year, many of our freshmen are testing out of languages, and so they're actually coming into college sometimes uh, with more language. Uh, other language, second language or third language facility than they end up in school. So uh, to me, I mean, I recognize that English is the business of the, is the language of business around the world today, but it seems to me a shame to really lose the potential of language. And my last thing is just to say, I'm not sure I agree that there's a negative spin on doing international work. I think young people today, particularly if they're thinking about careers, um, uh, recognize that at some point in, in their career, they, they probably will if not work in a non-U.S. location, at least be engaging much more in some kind of international uh, work, not just only in business. And so I think that that, I don't think it's so negative at this point. Maybe there's just not enough experience. Lest, lest we conclude on a melancholy note, I just want to <laughs> underscore, <laughs> underscore that, that, that uh, uh, there is a great deal more going on than we have identified today. I was struck just the other day watching uh, uh, some marches inspired by the American Bar Association to identify with uh, uh, attorneys in Pakistan uh, and, uh, and democracy and the rule of law. Uh, and, uh, and to Shelley Weinstein's point, uh, physicians and other professional groups in this country do things all over the world on a regular basis. And uh, I can only, I have this vision as I'm speaking of the, that uh, goes back many years to the, the ship Hope. Uh, it used to go float around. Maybe it still does uh, around the world. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen a photograph on, of it on the front page of the New York Times lately. But but the fact of the matter is that this country is uh, almost notoriously generous. The people of this country are notoriously generous in reaching out uh, to uh, uh, persons of the world, particularly when there's a crisis, whether it's uh, floods in Bangladesh or or, uh, or hurricanes or whatever or whatever the crisis may be. And so and so I think. Uh, uh, we, we, we ought to underscore the fact that Americans do care about their fellow human beings uh, uh, around, around the world. Uh, and it's a question, therefore, of nurturing and, and focusing and, uh, and encouraging these kinds of basic instincts, um, which are part of, the, part of our, our national tradition. I think that maybe, uh, maybe I can ask you a couple more questions of the audience. 
Um, perhaps the change that's being described is we've had this tradition, we've had this practice, but the suggestion of one of the questions is that it's really now more a matter of national security as well as of doing good for others. How do you feel about that? How many people feel that it is a matter of national security now as well? Um, how many people here, so that's overwhelming, how many people here feel that your, your less elite friends and neighbors share your point of view? <laughs> so you think so you think it's still a a uh, the the view that's held by those who've had the had this is the kind of exposure that you've had is that a fair summary? Okay, so we still have a big communication yeah. challenge. All right, let's go to the next round of uh, questions here. Um, do you just pick somebody in the back if you would? Yeah, we'll we'll get to you. No, don't worry. The person in the front row never gets forgotten. Uh, <laughs> Hi, my name's Chris Capacci Carnell. I work for USAID in the- I'm sorry, wait one second. Just see if it, keep talking and then, then we'll hear talk you. Talk louder. Okay, in yeah. the Asian Aries Bureau. Uh, what's your name? Chris Capacci Carnell. Okay. Uh, first, I have a comment. I live in Baltimore and there is a small liberal arts college there that has decided to make study abroad a requirement for all of their students, Goucher, Goucher College. So, um, you know, your story about making language a requirement for all students, maybe things are beginning to change, but I'd be curious to know, you know, for larger universities, whether this could ever be a reality. But actually, my other question is that in the last Open Doors report, there was a point in there about more and more international students are coming to the U.S. to go to community colleges. Um, it seems like it's a different group of people and maybe reaches out in a different way. Just curious about what you think about that. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Uh, there's a woman here in the front row who says she has a point right on the exact discussion. <laughs> I'm Margaret Sullivan uh, with the United States Indonesia Aceh School Project, so I've been doing education in Aceh. But I'm also the middle generation of families that have been doing this kind of global outreach. And I have a story about my son who is an Indonesian speaker and works at the University of Michigan. And he was the other day um, caught up in a visa issue and speaking with in the middle of a party in Indonesian on the cell phone about embassies and visas and stuff like that. And the young men among whom he was standing looked at him in somewhat of a horror because he was speaking a language they did not recognize and they did not trust. And I think when we have educated people who are doing what they're doing in Prince William County about, about Spanish speakers and are doing what was happening in Ann Arbor, Michigan, about looking askance at somebody that speaks a language that they don't recognize and don't trust, on maybe a subject they don't trust, that we have got a national division of what makes sensible international education, which is what we believe in, and people that think that multiculturalism is a nasty word. Okay, good. Good to get that on the, uh, Yes, I think we've got a microphone. 
Good morning. My name is Montrella Cowan. I am a senior at Catholic University of America. I'm also a fellow of the Institute for International Public Policy, which is one of the um, grants uh, provided by the State Department to increase minority representation in international affairs. And I'm proudly an, an alumni, alumni of World Learning schools, uh, School of International Training in Morocco, spring 2007. Also, my daughter, 14 years old, is an alumni of the Ghana program at EI, of EIL. So I just want to say that um, I was overwhelmed by the number of people who have had these experiences. And I have taken it upon, I was so inspired, I've taken it upon myself to go to my former um, high school in DC and share my experience. So I challenge each of you to share your experiences. We can start there. Um, at the, my former high school, Coolidge Senior High School, there's a population of about 500. They did not know about these opportunities. They were very thirsty. I did an evaluation. They were very hungry and thirsty for the information. And so if we share our experiences, then they can begin to make the connections and their interests will uh, grow in terms of learning another language or having an overseas experience. I challenge the panel because I have started a community service project called the Pilgrimage Project where I'm trying to grant these young people, minority underrepresented high school students, to have an overseas experience to support community service projects such as these. And then in these numbers, as they grow, as the interests grow, then we can start speaking to the policy makers about what we actually want. Why don't we, let's, let's see if the, uh, can you take the, uh, that person in the middle? Thanks. Hi, my name is Sadia. Um, I'm currently working at Common Cause. I was here at CSIS about a half a year ago. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is that, you know, I think that it takes a while to actually develop a crisis in a country of, you know, having a, like a lot of people not like America. And I think, um, it kind of makes the case for why it's important to um, nurture like a very subtle understanding of America, not just only through taboos or through, um, you know, like as the report indicated, when we really need Pakistan or really need Afghanistan or people on board. Um, what I'm trying to say is that what I've seen, you know, from my anecdotal experience is that people know America through war and taboos sometimes. and sometimes Americans know other countries through threats. And I think it takes a longer time to like really nurture um, understanding. And how do you think your programs can are, are already facilitating that? So let's take a couple more. We have somebody over here. Yes. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sally Ganat, and I'm currently a student at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. Um, it's a pretty large public school. and. They recently added Arabic to the list of languages that you can take. I took a full year and I'm hooked on it. But that's all the further I can go. They're not offering any more classes. And going to my counseling staff and my advisor, they don't know a lot about study abroad programs or immersion language programs. So my question is, how do you think that we can get the Midwest and some of the less populated areas into this trend? Because coming to DC, I've learned so much about programs that I can get into and that can help me that I wouldn't have known about if I'd stayed at home. Well, you're in Washington. Uh, uh, go visit your senators and your, uh, and your congressmen. Uh, it's called lobbying, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's, part of the American, it's part of the American tradition. Um, and it is precisely 
uh, people like you that these uh, uh, legislators will listen to a lot quicker and a lot more uh, uh, alertly than they uh, than they will to uh, uh, people like myself who are perceived of as, as uh, having self uh, self interest. Uh, I think you need to carry that message uh, both to the federal government and to the uh, the state governor, uh, state state government in uh, in uh, your home state. Um, no, I think it's imperative that uh, our um, community colleges, which are uh, moving along here, uh, uh, which are a unique form of American higher education. Indeed, they are to higher education what jazz is to uh, American uh, America, uh, to music. Um, uh, be uh, communicated also to the world, and I'm not at all surprised that people from uh, all over the world would want to come to our community colleges. They are priced right, uh, and they offer programs and degrees uh, that are accessible and transparent, and uh, and um, and which allow people uh, to educate both their minds and their eyes and their hearts and their hands, and go out and make a living uh, with uh, with uh, immediate uh, skills. Indeed. Uh, a lot of Americans are finding that that's true and either entering community colleges out of secondary school and some people with bachelor's degrees from universities discovering that it's hard to find a job, go back and do a quote-unquote vocational or professional kind of program in a community college which combined with their bachelor's <coughs> degree allows them to find uh, useful employment that they wouldn't otherwise be able to have. Let's, uh, let's, when we answer the other questions, if, if, uh, do you want to jump in on these? I just um, Steve took two of them off. It's <laughs> good, thanks. First of all, I was delighted. You were a study abroad in Morocco, you said, and your 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 son or daughter was an experimenter. Yes. Where? In Ghana. In Ghana. Wow. Uh, in any case, I wanted to um, I wanted to talk about Iowa for a second, or not just Iowa. I mean, it's not just people aren't just doing study abroad from the coasts. I mean, they're doing from many places. But again. Um, there is some cost to these study abroad programs, and one of the challenges in state schools is because the tuition for in-state students is lower, then, the, it, it, then there is a financial challenge. So I suppose one place to lobby is to support the Senator Paul Simon bill to get more resources into, um, you know, I always hate for that to be the first answer. Well, if you just put more money. But the fact is, there, just, there needs to be more money to support um, um, high school students and undergraduates, and I agree it shouldn't just stop with students, but at least there to study abroad and, and particularly focused in those areas where you have the economic, uh, you, you, you're not able to just take your full tuition, which is why you tend to have in some of your smaller liberal arts colleges a larger percentage of folks studying abroad because they just take their tuition with them. Secondly, I think the Goucher thing is very good. Um, they made a commitment, they're not the only one, from University of Texas to other places, more colleges and universities are at least trying to improve the number of students who are studying overseas. My only concern about Goucher is it's a very short program and I just worry, I don't think it always has to be a full semester, but just a couple weeks can be awfully short by the time you get there and you, you get back. Um, um, so I'll stop with those. Oh, and I just, I think working with local schools is a great idea of, uh, I mean, if we're thinking about alternatives that we can all occasionally do something about, even working with our local schools for all of us uh, isn't a bad idea to just try and encourage that. How many, how many let, me, people, uh, let me just ask quickly, Pat, if you sure, don't mind, how many people here uh, do some form of community service with a local school or something else that requires you to use your international experience that you brought here? So once again, we've got a little bit of uh, a model group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good. I would just want to say a word about uh, what uh, in Washington tends to be characterized as critical 
uh, languages and critical languages in her study. Um, one of the one of the beauties of the American system of higher education is that over time it is responsive, and over time, though starts and fits you'll experience, uh, you're going to find more so-called critical languages uh, incorporated into college language programs. Uh, you're going to have uh, studies of Arabic. Uh, you're going to have studies of Arabic and Arabic-based culture. Uh, you're, you're going to have uh, more courses and more language opportunities and languages that uh, have to date been alien to the American experience of Romance languages. Um, one of the ironies, however, of exchanges, at least in my experience, I've had the experience of teaching in Egypt, Egypt, Italy, Israel, um, <coughs> lots of places, Hungary. Uh, one of the ironies, of course, is that uh, students will come to your class, uh, native students, and of course they insist upon instruction in English. Uh, when I taught in Hungary, a student said to me, if I wanted you to speak broken Hungarian, you know, I could <laughs> sort of go around to the corner uh, butcher shop or something, you know. I'm here to learn English, you know, and, and to the extent that some constitutional law being taught, taught as well, that's sort of an add-on. But uh, I, I'm, I'm reminded in particular uh, of Ghana, and one of the experiences, of course, in the uh, uh, English-speaking um, uh, West African countries is that the language of university life and instruction happens to be English. Uh, uh, having taught in Ghana on two occasions, uh, I, I experienced that. But it was the culture is what you really, what we're really talking about, not so much the language. But in, but in terms of critical language studies generally, there's no, uh, I, I happen to be, you know, as, as higher education people, we, we, are, we are intuitively optimistic. The glass is always half full for us, otherwise we wouldn't be in this profession. Uh, uh, and I happen to think that over time, uh, critical language studies, and we're going, to have, we're going to have lots of discussions as to what's critical, but critical language studies is going to become more the norm than not, and it's happening. Um, maybe in starts and fits, but, but it will happen. There will be a response to it. I think there was one question here that we didn't quite answer, and I'd like to just get your very quick response, if you could. What is the piece of American of, of America that you feel is least well understood overseas? That's what is what is something that we don't do uh, that, that annoys you when you travel or as you work overseas that that we have not communicated about ourselves? Well, I think people are confused about uh, uh, the difference between the the government and the people uh, and the extraordinarily uh, sympathetic and uh, open uh, uh, perspective of uh, much of much of America um, we've had I've had the the, 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 the sad uh, experience of traveling abroad during wars during the Vietnam War uh, I was a student in England and and um, and um, and now, of course, uh, uh, when you travel abroad, and people who are critical of American initiative abroad um, uh, um, find it hard to, to, to know where the country begins and the people, the Americans, uh, uh, end, or where the two overlap. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if we had more Americans uh, uh, traveling abroad, meeting people from abroad, uh, we could quickly overcome whatever unhappiness there may be about American foreign policy uh, and, uh, and restore 
the, uh, the good feeling uh, that um, uh, has existed historically towards the United States. Uh, I, I can't help but think uh, uh, that one measure that I always use is, uh, that distinguishes us from many other countries is, how many people are trying to get into the United States and how many people are trying to get out of other countries. And, uh, and, um, and to the extent that people want to come here, presumably, they can't dislike us all that much. If there's one thing that I've observed, it's confusion on the part of our foreign colleagues relative to what I would call American democracy with a capital A and a capital D, and all of the quarrelsome, uh, difficult discussions and activities that that generates. There, there's a sense that, you know, we don't, we're, we're not quite as definite in our thinking and in our resolve and in our policy as we might be. Um, we have this troublesome thing called a national election every four years. We have a, a Congress that, that we have an independent Supreme Court. Uh, these are institutions that uh, are largely unique to the United States, um, and uh, but they work and they and they've worked well for us. I don't want to go back to that old bromide. You know, democracy is you know a pretty messy system, but it's it's the best thing going. Um, um, but I think particularly when we confront uh, enemies real and imagined, uh, there's on the one hand a sense of let's have Americans uh, certainty, namely let's see the seventh, seventh Fleet. On the other hand, there's a sense of that same expression of power uh, it is troublesome because of the arrogance that it propels, the refusal to uh, learn our language, the refusal to acknowledge our culture, the refusal to acknowledge our history. When I, when I taught, uh, uh, gave uh, one or two lectures at the University of Cairo, uh, one of the individuals uh, who introduced me uh, had been a, a brigadier in the in the uh, Egyptian army, and he, you know, he said, you know, it's, uh, you you speak of, you know, American democracy, and you're you're speaking of a three or four hundred year invention. You know, we speak of Egyptian history, and we go millennia. Um, and but we don't get credit for that. You know, you get all the credit, we get no credit, um, and it, that's true. And this is a this is a Western educated, very sophisticated, multi language speaking individual. But somewhere within that individual is a sense of you're not acknowledging us. And one of the ways you're not acknowledging us, you're not learning our languages. You're not acknowledging our languages and our culture. Uh, you have this messy thing called democracy, but. As Steve just indicated, uh, our decline in students, international students coming not, notwithstanding, um, uh, we have never had cause in this country to erect borders or checkpoints to prevent folk from leaving. You know, that's not, you know, you know folks still find their value, there's value in this great American experience. Bill, anything you want to add? Or I have well, a flag. We are building this horrible have, wall these days. I have there. a flag, by the way, that I unfurl pretty much at this point as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's, it's it, 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 I agree with both. It's, it's, it's the distinction between the human and the institution. Yeah. And, I, and I think because it's such a big country, we get defined in the institution, whatever that institution is. And then when they actually engage with Americans, well, well you're not, you're, oh, you're different from yeah. what I thought. And, and I think it's because we get defined institutionally. This, uh, this gentleman here, and then there's a, a 
man in the blue shirt who's also going to have a health problem if we don't call on him. <laughs> Not me. Uh, Tom Gittins. I used to be the CEO of Sister Cities International and am here representing the new U.S. Center for Citizen Diplomacy, which is located in Des Moines, Iowa not far from Ames. Uh, a couple informational points. Uh, I don't speak for AARP, but I do know they have an international office. I think uh, five years ago they only had three people in it, and I think they must have a dozen or so now, so there is an increasing uh, interest there. And certainly the Community College Network has a large international, increasing international uh, consortium that, uh, that uh, operates with those schools who are interested uh, internationally. Uh, I would challenge just a little bit the concept that I've heard some of that, that there's a lot of ignorance around this country about getting involved. I, um, I mean, last year or in the last two years, there have been over 80 summits on citizen diplomacy around this country. There are, at the community level, from what I've seen and traveling around a lot, uh, there's a lot of current activity and a lot of increased desire to do something. It seems to me the issue is that as part of I think your report for CSIS, the smart power report, and, and this conversation is that there are no goals and strategies for this country for, for sustainable global involvement of citizens. And that's the issue. And that's a top issue. Uh, I don't think it's so much a ground up as it is, uh, you mentioned resources and, and other things that really have to be reinforced at the highest levels, whether it's in Congress, whether it's in the White House, whether it's getting back to USIA or whatever the issues may be. But I, I think that's, I'd like to hear whether there's any agreement on that. Great, thanks. Uh, then this gentleman also in your neighborhood. Yeah, uh, no, right here in the middle, middle seat. Yeah, don't really need this. My name's Dan, I'm with the State Department. I have a small piece. Go ahead, because, because we're gonna broadcast what you're saying. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> okay, uh, in that case, my name is Fred. I'm with, <laughs> and these are my own personal views and nothing else. I, I, have a, I have a very small part of the National Security Language Initiative, which is a U.S. government-funded program to get American secondary school students overseas to do language training. Um, how big is it? How, what's the what's the size? Of it? It's tiny. We have a we just got uh, increased in our budget to about eight million dollars, which is a tiny drop in the bucket for the kinds of things that can be done here. Obviously, the needs here are quite great. We run about 130 uh, students a year to study Chinese and Arabic overseas. Well, the reason I am offering my two cents worth is for Iowa. There are places you can go to before you go off to Congress and start lobbying. Uh, one of which is uh, check the website www.state.gov. Uh, we have a lot of um, tertiary level uh, education exchange programs. Also the Department of Education is a place to look. They've got, uh, they're part of the National Security Language Initiative as well. And I, I wouldn't be a Foreign Service officer 22 years without having a, uh, an editorial comment or two to say. Just first of all, brief, that's all. Brief, is, brief, is, brief is good. Uh, first of all, I, I've, I've served overseas many years, and I find this argument that there's this distinction between the people and the institutions to be a real falsehood. It's, it's a real red herring. Hmm. Uh, we, we are who we are. Our institutions help define us. And when you have people say, you know, we love you, but we hate everything that you do, I'd have to ask that person, you know, well, you don't like what Americans vote for. How can you really like Americans, and how can you, uh, you know, really like? Those are the things, after all, that reflect us. Uh, the last thing, too, is on the soft power. Um, uh, I served in Algeria, young foreign service officer, USIA, 
And uh, there was a place right down the street from us. We could often hear the machine gun fire emanating from there on the Fridays. And uh, it was a place called a Place John F. Kennedy. And of course, that's the first thing I think of when I hear that um, America has lost its voice in terms of its branding, its, uh, its power to reach out to people on moral issues and moral suasion. People believe in us, and they believe in what we stand for. We can't give that up, and we shouldn't give that up without a serious fight. Uh, Do you want to jump yeah, right into yeah. that? Yeah, I, uh, you know, language, including English, is very important. And I think, and, and I, not that I have a violent disagreement with the last speaker, but when we use words like hate, when we introduce hate into the discussion, I think we go into a, different, a whole different area. Um, there are folk in this country who hate this country. Uh, and there are folk abroad who hate what they perceive to be this country. Notwithstanding that, uh, uh, some of us truly believe, our experiences notwithstanding, that we're bigger than the hate, that, that, that there is something unique about the American experience that in time, mindful security, hard power is critical, to give you the time, uh, will trump the hate. And I'm sure you don't disagree with that. But, at, but you know there are but, but I don't personally the analysis I don't find the analysis personally helpful uh, when I think in terms of hate because that takes me uh, to a different place but but let me just segue if I may and I'm going to one of the very few prerogatives that I have uh, as being a member of this panel much like as, as a university president we have two prerogatives uh, <laughs> the first prerogative is we get a parking space uh, more often than not uh, uh, sometimes, and, and and the second prerogative is that we pretty much decide when we're going to leave the office. Sometimes, not, not entirely, but sometimes. <laughs> but I'm going to exercise one prerogative with your indulgence. Uh, we uh, a very distinguished uh, group here today, and I'm just delighted to be here. But I do want to uh, call attention to a former a cabinet officer, a distinguished American, uh, great citizen, William Coleman, is with us today. Bill. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to you and give you a chance for a question if you'd like. I think on the on the language piece, my suspicion is that there is more language training now taking place mm -hmm. in the Department of Defense mm -hmm. and in the CIA by far than in any other parts of the U.S. government. And so it's kind of once again. The opportunity to strike a fresh direction, not to criticize the Department of Defense for doing it because it's wise to be doing it, but the effort that they have and the thousands of people that are studying Arabic now within the Department of Defense dwarfs really what the civilian side is doing and, and once again may perpetuate the hard power model as opposed to the smart power approach. So if I could just jump in, I'm sorry, one thing because we were talking again earlier about we keep talking about the government, but there are so many other actors out there. I mean, if one thinks about the implications for teaching of Chinese through the Freeman money that's been going out for the last several years, just an incredible power in terms of the explosion of uh, Chinese teaching. And so it is, it, there are many more actors out there than it's not just government and non-governmental. There's a range of actors out there. The, 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 quick, the, quick bites, and then we'll go for one last round. The complexity of today's agenda. <clears throat> suggests the following. Right. Anything you say is true. 
There's too much. There's too little. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, they love us. They hate us. Yes. Uh, um, it's it's all true. It's it's you know people people visit New York and they say uh, oh I don't like America as if New York is America as if Paris is France. Uh, uh, if you don't get to Iowa, you haven't been in America. Uh, the truth of the matter is that that this agenda is is uh, so nuanced and so faceted that we could go on for hours and hours and hours and never get it exactly exactly right or touch on on touch on all the subjects. And uh, and there is government and there is non-government and there is voluntary and there is there is AARP and there are younger programs and, and there are exchange programs and there are missions abroad. There's church groups we haven't even mentioned, the religious and the faith group related groups. So listen, as I said before, I don't want, I don't want to suggest that uh, uh, there's reason for despair. That said, there is reason for us to redouble our efforts, to be concerned, to do more, and to, and to read this report and to uh, swear allegiance to it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think we're at we're actually much closer to 11 than I realized. Secretary Coleman, would you like the last word, or would you defer? There's a microphone right behind you, if you don't mind. I appreciate very much that you have this type of discussion. Uh, my problem with it is that uh, when I read that uh, in the eighth grade in the D.C. schools that kids can't do fourth grade work, I'm pretty sure that has to spell over into your university. I somewhat smiled when you talked about knowing this language. When I went to Penn, I really learned Latin because I thought lawyers had to know Latin, which isn't true. <laughs> and I then learned French very much. But it turned out when I was called up to active duty with the 332nd Fighter Group, we fought the Germans and they didn't speak French. So therefore, and then we were transferred to get ready to go to Japan. And I don't think the Japanese speak French. French either. So <laughs> I'm just saying, and, and, and thirdly, I, I just wonder, in, in my experience, like we have in China an office of about 70 lawyers in Shanghai, 20 in Beijing, and 20 in Hong Kong. And my experience is that the Americans that speak Americans, particularly if they're Chinese American, do effectively well. And I also find out that the great Chinese speak language. You know, but the point I really wanted to make that once you have CNN and it's all over the world, I've always had experience when I go abroad that people can speak English. And finally, I think we have a Secretary of State now who knows Russian probably better than anybody in this room. But I can't imagine when she goes to deal with the Russians that that's what she would do. In fact, when I had to deal with President and I went representing PepsiCo and the deal was try to keep PepsiCo in, I spent an hour talking about Pushkin because my mother and father told me Pushkin was black. Not only that, his uh, great-grandfather, who was the first one that came over to Russia, was sent, was made a general, was sent to uh, Europe for five years to learn how to use uh, artillery, came back, and that's how the Russians won the Battle of Potova, which is the first time the Russians ever beat the Europeans. I'm just saying that I begged both the colleges to really think more about the culture of people mm. and what they did rather than try to learn their language. Great. Great. I think, well said. Thank you very much. I think it's a wonderful conclusion to a, a rich session. Please join me in thanking our three panelists. <laughs> thank you.